Yep. Thank you for mentioning the Canadian dollar. Pound that thing to death, you know. I get a bunch of money and then they devalue it to half. That sucks, you know what I'm saying. The largest oil painting I've ever seen in my life, you know. I hope we're going to have some fun here this morning. And uh, just before I start talking, I want, I want to say that I know some of you are, are um, in here with a heavy burden. I know that, that for some of you, life is just awful right now. And the last thing you need is a guy with no hair, a big nose, and a happy life, you know. Okay. I completely understand that. Some of you have got some really awful things that have happened, and, and you know, you, you see some bozo up front making light of things, and I, I just, what I want to say to you today is, is that, uh, you know, it, it's almost insisted on in our literature that we have fun. My sponsor said it this way, if the pain of sobriety ever exceeds the comfort of sobriety, you will drink. And so he said, from this day and every day forward, you will find ways to have fun. So hopefully today we'll have some laughs. Hopefully today I'll say some things that matter, but more than anything else, cut me some slack. Okay? This has been a paid political announcement. <laughs> we might have a lousy dollar, but at least we have a leader. I think that's kind of classy for democracy, don't you? 100 million votes and it's down to 900. And people sitting in a room that look like this. You know, you go into the meeting after this? I don't know. <laughs> 20 years I worried that I had a hanging chat. Now you guys are hung up on one, you know what I'm saying? So, no. Anyway, my name is Marty and I'm an alcoholic. Cab driver told me on my way here that there are 129,000 rooms in Las Vegas and that every single room this weekend is booked. And I'm an alcoholic, so I got thinking about how that might affect me. I got thinking, well, there's 129,000 rooms. There's going to be 3,000 to 4,000 people at the convention. Knowing the way that alcoholics spend money. That, that would be about a hundred of those rooms that are taken by alcoholics. <laughs> My God, there's nearly 13,000 rooms in this city being currently occupied by active alcoholics. There could be truckloads of ashtrays and blankets and sheets going out of here tonight. You know what I'm saying? I feel we almost have some sort of a responsibility to go up in the strip and say, stay in your rooms. They're drinking up there, you know. Can you imagine 10% of this town right now out there actively alcoholic? God, it's scary. I'm so glad I'm not one of them. I've never been in Las Vegas drunk. Started coming here in 1978. I think the town was about 200,000 people back then. Wayne Newton was before his voice changed. 22 years later, you got 2 million people. Wayne Newton. Donkey Shane. You know, he's got that. According to Sean Allen, I should be back here in about 18 years. Wayne Newton. Guy's been on the strip longer than anything else. They're going to rip him down and put him back up one of these days soon. This is it's the most amazing city. You know, imagine coming to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on a Sunday morning. 
thousands of people not out there gambling and drunk. And then they say that. I don't think there's any miracles in AA. Oh, yes, there is. Just the fact that we can be here eyeball to eyeball, you know. Because Las Vegas, there's something about this, eh? I was telling them in Laughlin when I was there, I heard two idiots out in front of a casino one day, one saying to the other, where do they get the money to build these places? <laughs> wow. Duh. <laughs> I want to tell you that you have a first-class convention. I, I may not be the, the most popular speaker in the world, but I've been all over the world, and I've talked at hundreds of these things. And some of them are okay, and some of them are, you know, better than okay, and then you get one like this. Well run. Uh, they treat you kindly. They respect you. I don't know how the crowd is doing, but the speakers have done very well. It's magnificent. So I just, uh, if I had any hair, I'd tip it to you, but I can just tell you that it's, it's a wonderful thing to see this kind of organization in spirit of getting together. Common purpose, right? Here's an organization with no leaders. <laughs> you guys could identify with that on an ever-growing scale, but I'm saying... Here, here's an organization with no leadership that has leadership that for a period of time can get a common purpose and come together and our, our egos can clash and everything else can happen, but for the common good, we have this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. And just for so long as we're useful to this thing that we call God, it will continue. And so I don't have a bunch of fear when I hear an AA talk and people are saying stuff I don't agree with. I don't get all tense. Jeez, who invited that idiot? And the guy that invited him is going, I don't know. However, if you give a good talk, he's saying, oh yeah, we're very close. Very close. <laughs> you see, the truth of an Alcoholics Anonymous talk and the spirituality of this program is that no matter what I say, you won't hear what I say anyway. I couldn't tell you the number of podiums upon which I've stood and people have said, thank you for your message about the goat. I never talked about a goat. Then I recognized what actually happened probably was that I triggered something in their head. They went away, had that experience with the goat. <laughs> and transferred all of that to me. No way. It wasn't me and that goat. It didn't happen. Like Clancy said last night, I need to explain this to you before I tell you what actually happened. I was told uh, by my spiritual leaders in Alcoholics Anonymous a number of years ago to tell what we were like, what happened, what we are like now. And I constantly hear people talking about what it was like, what happened, and what it is like. Now, it doesn't matter what it was like. What it was like was the result of how I was. You create your own reality every day. That person you stared at in that mirror this morning is the direct result of the thoughts you held on to yesterday. And we know that because of the second step. It says that we have to come to believe that there's something greater that can take us out of our current reality. And so I want to talk a little bit about what we were like last night, or that our, over the last number of years. But what this we thing was when I got here, I looked at the first step and I thought, you know, these cowards can't even admit anything on their own. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol. And then the other voices inside of me said, one voice said, never. I'll never admit anything. Another voice said, you know, you really should. And I heard my Uncle Stan say, you're an alcoholic. And I heard all these different voices. There was a we there. I, the loudest of voice of all was this little voice who kept saying, the guy across the table staring at you. 
We are a collective uh, group of people. That's true. And I mean, I could not have heard what I needed to hear uh, by myself in my own head because of all of the different beliefs upon which I, I had been basing my life up until that time. And you know, when I started drinking at the age of 11, I didn't start drinking because I uh, uh, was waiting for some sort of a relief or release at 11 years old. I mean, you don't know anything. Basically, I was just a kid. I, I knew I didn't like my mom and dad. I mean, they had some characteristics that annoyed me. My mother used to breathe in and out constantly. I don't, I don't mean just like intermittently. In and out. In. Out. God, I used to wish she'd stop that. Eleven years old, I was a kid that stood at the outside of Christmas. You know what I'm saying? The, the, the idiots that are in there. and the, I had this brother who turned out to be alcoholic. Don't tell me there's no justice in AA because I can, I can tell you there is. This guy used to get up in the middle of the night and change all the Christmas presents around and He'd open toy after toy after toy, and I'd get socks and underwear. And I, I didn't want to be part of that. I didn't want to be part of that family. I did not understand the concept of love. To this day, I mean, I still struggle with the concept of love. Usually after somebody says, I love you, it's usually like, and take the garbage out. Or, you know, give me some. There's always this, like, kind of like subliminal stuff going on just under the love concept. And my family was like that. I used to watch the way they were in the house, you know. Phone ring. Will you pass? Hello. And I, you know, that's our whole life in our family was like that. There was this madness that went on inside the house, and then hello. And I thought everybody was like that. I mean, I'd run into anybody, and as soon as they were nice to me, I thought, oh, I wonder what you're really like. Scuzz bucket slime ball. And then I'd look them right in the eye, and I'd say hello. Here's what you learn early on in Alcoholics Anonymous if you're listening. If you don't trust anybody, it's because you're not trustworthy. If you can't love anybody, it's because you, you, you just are incapable of giving love. And so it's just kind of like this me-first program. When you understand these things, you'll do these things. That's awful when you're sitting on the outside of that. And my mother, as much as she tried to embrace me as a child, seemed to somehow push me away because I thought there was some other sort of an agenda. You know, disease of perception, I don't know. I just know that I was an angry kid in grade six. I, was, I needed a drink. We were in a bathroom. It was like 140 degrees, you know. But that's like Canada, cold outside. And it's not cold outside all the time, by the way. We have over a week of summer. <laughs> if you add the days together. But anyway, <laughs> so a little friend named Guy, and Guy's dad had built a house, and they, they had a bought a whole bunch of Loganberry wine. Did you ever drink Loganberry wine? Somebody was talking here about drinking wine so that when, when you barf, it looks like you're bleeding from your stomach. So you can... I, I liked Loganberry wine because it went down this dark purple and came up like a foamy pink. And uh, never seen a group of people so fixated on projectile vomiting as speakers at conferences of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, and when they get the detoxifying going from both ends, it seems to light them up like a sparkler. They... <laughs> and you can always tell the Elanons from the AAs at that point, because the Elanons are going... And the AAs are going... <laughs> and the visitors are going... I guess that's how they delineate a crowd, I don't know. 
Anyway, we're in this bathroom. I have no earthly idea what's going to happen to me. I just know that people drink. I've seen my father drink. He's an Irish, two-fisted, drinking, fighting man. And I was a girly man. You know, I was just a wimp compared to my father. My father could twist the head off an owl. He was just nasty. Later years drinking, I remember we got in a bar one night and a guy came up to fight him and my dad said, Ray, I don't want to fight you. You're too small and I'll go to jail like usual, which he had done many times. And Ray kept at it and at it and at it and finally my dad flipped him over his knee and spanked him. I remember at 18 years old getting a nose full of whiskey and the guys were talking about beating their old man up and I thought, oh yeah, good idea. It was not a good idea. I went home and my old man was sitting in a chair and my brother Paul was on a Chesterfield laying on the, a couch. Laying on a couch. Chesterfield's a cigarette down here. I know, you're already thinking. Yeah. So, lay on a couch. My old man's sitting in the chair. I walked in. It was an alcoholic, Will. I walked up to him. I said, get up. <laughs> I got a puzzled look come across his face like, what? I said, get up. So he got up and I like this, and he went, you are kidding. I took another one, and he just kind of reached over and went, and I went, no, it was, you know, you see that on television when those boxers go down, and you think it's a joke, it's no joke, your knees are gone, and I'm an alcoholic, and while I'm down there, and the foam starts to settle, I think to myself, lucky hit. The swelling hasn't gone out of this thing yet. But I, I get up another time and I, and I take another swing at him. And he said, oh, for heaven's sakes. And he went, Poof, like this. And I went down. And the last thing I remember was my brother leaning forward and saying, stay down. <laughs> there was an old speaker years ago that used to say these things just happened to alcoholics. They just have my old man. Uh, I mean, he, he just really I kind of raised me in his estimation. You know? And my mother stayed awake all night trying to keep me from going into a concussion. Because, I mean, I just, I didn't go to school for a little while. Just black and blue, broke my nose. Amazingly powerful man. Had one more fight with him. Well, it wasn't a fight. He hit me, I hit the ground, he dusted the floor. But, uh, uh, and when he was 80 years old, I remember him sitting on his on deathbed and saying, you know, today may be your day. <laughs> I'm an elky, I'm not stupid. I thought, no, no, no. <laughs> oh, no, I don't want those bony knees in the crotch, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> Thank you very much for sharing. Yeah. Anyway, at 11 years old in that bathroom, I drank that Loganberry wine, and I went through the change. You have all gone at great length to describe at these podiums a thousand times. It's impossible for people who don't have an allergy to alcohol to understand precisely what takes place. Because the piece of information I was missing the whole time I was drinking was that when I drink, it does not affect me the way it affects other people. I mean, if you don't know that, how would you know something was wrong? Bill says, strawberry allergies. If you don't eat strawberries, you never know you have an allergy. Well, the minute I took that alcohol into my body, I became different than this little buddy of mine, Guy. Guy spit his back in the toilet. And we'd been friends all of our young lives, but we were no longer friends. Anybody that would spit something like that back into a toilet 
was of little or no interest to me. And I, at 11 years old, immediately changed companionship. And you see, you need to understand that for a period of time you seek lower companionship until you finally have the ability to become lower companionship. And at 11, you know, people, I, every time I get down from a podium and I've ever told this kind of a story, I'll have people come up and say, where would a little guy at 11 years old get liquor? <laughs> well, you steal it. You play in a rock and roll band. You, you, you do what you have to do, just like you. And you know, when I first got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was 23 years old. I've been sober since February the 8th of 1976. So my next, thank you, my next birthday, I'll be 25 years away from alcohol. I was 23 when I got here. That meant my drinking career was something like 12 years. Well, some of you blacked out that long, you know? And I've had people say to me when I first got here, oh, for how could you be alcohol? You're so young. Look at you, you know? And I want to say to them, how could you stay out there that long? I mean, if you were really an alcoholic like I was, I mean, if you were really doing liver damage the way I was doing it at 17, 18 years old, if you were really in the same situation I'm in right now, which is with a liver that's four times its size and it's not going to get better, how could you stay out there 24 years? I got that question. And besides that, boring. Did you find that after a while? It's like, oh, here we go again. It's the most boring disorder in the entire world. One of the main reasons I sobered up is because I started to look for a bridge to run my car into every time I'd be coming home from the same night. It was like Groundhog Day, for God's sake. Yeah. You... There she is. There I am. There it is. There he is. Do you ever anybody ever say to you, you know, I mean, wouldn't you like to drink? You ever had that? <laughs> I remember one time I sponsored a kid. He's 18 years old. He also is sober, just about 25 years now. And somebody said to him, why don't you have one? And he said, I'd be happy to. And he pulled out a piece of paper. And he said, if you'll just sign this document saying that when I absolutely wreck your house, rape your wife, and kill your dog, that you won't press charges. <laughs> That'd be fine. You see, when I put alcohol into my body, I can no longer control the things that are going to happen to me. I cannot control the stuff that I really want to do. I don't do anything I wouldn't like to do. It's just it's not socially acceptable behavior anymore. But I still think these things. You know, it's an amazing thing. When you, when you put me together with alcohol, the absolute veil that is called civilization disappears. I just start to do what I think. I start to say what I think. I start to become the black, mad animal that I was inside with all of these unresolved things that were going on. You see, when we admitted we were alcoholic, when we admitted we had an alcohol addiction, alcohol addiction, alcohol ick, that's where that came from. That's why it always amazes me when people call themselves an alcoholic addict. It's like an alcoholic addict addict. You are an addict, an alcohol ick is somebody who cannot control the amount of alcohol once they start to drink. You see, and in that bathroom that day, that night, with that little guy, he finished up his little bottle of a couple of drinks of wine. I knocked that bottle off. I stole one more for the way home. I got on my bicycle and rode right into the back of a truck. And as I'm hitting the tarmac, doing a skin donation, you know, like I'm thinking, this doesn't even hurt. <laughs> <laughs> 
bulletproof, six feet tall, going home to beat my brother, the present stealer, up. And I go in the house, and my mother says, you know, what happened to you? Because I've got foamy pink Loganberry wine on me, and knees are out of my pants. I'm a little bloodied up. And this is why I believe there's only one brain in the universe that all alcoholics use. Because we all seem to access the same answer. I, she said, were you drinking? Uh-huh. How many did you have? Two. See <laughs> what I'm saying? How could that be if there was more than one brain? See, if you say you have three, you're only a heavy drinker. But every alcoholic in the world only ever had two. She threw me in a tub. I barfed. I was in there. I was pleased. Man, I had had a night. And then my old man kicked my rear end, and I went to sleep. It was morning. I couldn't wait to get to school to share with the other kids what I had discovered. And you can imagine my amazement when they kind of frowned. You know, as I told them, here's what happened to me. I mean, I barfed. I got beat up. I uh, smacked my bike up. I've got another bottle of this stuff. Why don't we do it tonight? <laughs> See, I lost my companions. In grade six, the kids started to look young. Something happens to you when you learn to think in a certain way. You know, you, you hear people in Alcoholics all, Anonymous all the time, and they're around the program, and they can speak the program, and you would think because they're around and can speak the program that they would recover, but they don't because they won't do the certain things that this program requires you to do. And, and alcoholism is like that. There are certain things you must be willing to do. You know, every time you go drinking, you must almost necessarily set a new low for yourself. If I ever, you know, fill in the blanks, pee myself in front of more than four people. Um, I was out the other day. Some guy said he got drunk and, and hadn't peed, him. I, peed himself. I said, you can do that? Maybe I quit too soon. You know, I, I, I was a, a messy, uh, sloppy, uh, obnoxious, angry, aggressive, uh, unreasonable drunk. And it felt so good. It seemed when I was drunk was the only time in my life I was ever all in one place all at the same time. You know, when you talk about spirituality, you come to these meetings in the morning, and I see people that have got these huge God understandings, and oh, what I would give to, to have five seconds of what they seem to have. But spirituality works on a different level to me. Spirituality to me is the things that you can't see. Anything I can't see in a human being that is that human being is the spiritual side of that human being. It is that thing that happens. When I go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I listen to one bonehead after the other repeat what they heard at the night before his meeting, and I see these people that are not connected to anything come forth with these great pearls of wisdom, and at the end of the meeting I haven't heard anything new, and I think to myself, God, I feel better. I suddenly realize that there's a meeting going on at the intellectual level, and there's a meeting going on right below the belly button. At the spiritual level, a thing I can't even hear or understand. I hope that's happening for you this very morning, that what we're talking about is only the surface of what's really going on. And so you see, I had this spiritual blackness, a madness. The big book describes what I have as a spiritual disorder. That, that, that day in that bathroom, what I discovered was a power greater than myself. 
I discovered a way to be at ease in any situation. And so I became addicted to it, wouldn't you? Smug Elanons there. If I drank like that, I'd have quit. Well, if you drank like that, you wouldn't have quit. In fact, if you're so smart, what are you doing with us? Yeah. <laughs> I was told today that anybody can get into Alcoholics Anonymous, but you've got to know somebody to become an Elanon. That's it. Yeah. So, once all of the voices inside of me become so discordant, I had this part of me that wanted to be so good. I had this part of me that was just so bad. And it was just depending on who won on what day according to how my behavior would go. This is why will will not work in the program. I will to stay sober, and then I have this other part of my will that says, who is going to make you stay sober? I have this part of me that says, when you drink, you're an animal. <laughs> and I have this other part of me that says, right on. I have this desire to serve and this desire to crush, to be kind and to be angry. I have all of these human things that normal human beings have, but they seem to be able on a daily basis to deal with that stuff. I would either have one side of my character win or the other on a given day, and if I had alcohol in me, I'll guarantee you I'm going to start moving toward the stuff that brings the eyebrows up on other people. I don't know why that is. I don't know why it's easier to be nasty than it is good, but I just sort of gravitated toward that. And so by the time I was 17, 18 years old, I was what's known in the school system as a discipline problem. Does not surprise any of you. By the time I came out of grade 12, the teachers were begging me to go into the College of Education and become a teacher. Because they said if anybody could deal with discipline problems in kids, it would be you. Because they had seen such a turnaround in me in my grade 12 school year. Now let me tell you the rest of the story. When I was in grade 11, because of the pressures that were coming on me as a young alcoholic, trying to function in the school system and all of the other things that were happening, I decided to leave uh, after finishing grade 11, go into radio and television to become a broadcaster. Radio, television, actually radio at that time, broadcaster, because I'd heard that radio had the highest divorce rate and the highest alcoholism rate of any industry in the world. To me, it was like a brochure, come on over here, kind of an industry. Put on the big news coach, you know, and go and drink with the men. And uh, so I left school, and I, I had a year that was incredible, incredible. I broadcast all night, drank all day, did not eat. There was no money to eat. And I watched a friend take a revolver and blow his head off. Um, a suicide that, um, you know, stuff starts to happen to you when you drink. They call it a progressive disease. It's also progressive results. It's funny how the parking tickets you get, you know, for the first number of years, you go get hammered, you roll the car over, a couple of guys burp, two throw up, everybody laughs, right? And then it starts. It just seems to start. Then the next one, somebody crushes a leg or whatever. Well, anyway, these consequences had started to become manifest in my life. And this young guy one night said, I bought a gun to kill myself. And I said, well, you know, get at it. So uh, he pulled this revolver out. We were drinking vodka and he blew his head off. And it was like the first uh, reality of, of what was going to be happening to me over the next while. I was obviously crushed and disturbed and felt somehow responsible because here's the other thing I know about my alcoholism. I feel responsible or irresponsible all the time. It's just a funny thing. It's sort of like 
what I was saying about the cab driver. He tells me there's 129,000 rooms. I'm starting thinking, how does that affect me? See, that's a whole perceptional state of mind. Well, anyway, uh, after his suicide, I took some LSD. I think that's important, you know, trying to help you with your grieving. And I know we, I, we're not at a meeting of Narcotics Anonymous, and I'm not a drug addict, and I'm not, I didn't take a great deal of drugs. The drugs I took, masculine acid speed, you know, the safe ones. And uh, I didn't like drugs. I don't know. And like, as an alcoholic, I can be under the bed throwing up and feel so in control. But when I'm on drugs, I feel out of control. I felt afraid. And so it was kind of like an upside-down, backwards thing to me. And drug addicts that I talk to, many of them tell me when they're on alcohol, they feel physically out of control, and that scares them. So it's no wonder we have a little bit of trouble talking at the same podium about two different subjects. Here's what I learned, though. During that period of time, that uh, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization settled down at a level at 17 years old, I, I buckled. I remember laying for months in my bedroom with my mother bringing me scotch whiskey. <laughs> this is a mother everybody should have. <laughs> I remember when I joined Alcoholics Anonymous, she said, what will you do next to humiliate this family? <laughs> she used to bring me scotch, you know, to keep the craziness off of you. And so I spent a lot of time like that. It was months before I was able to come out, and at the end of the day, I ended up coming out, and of course I wasn't drinking. I mean, I went back to school, I was sober, and I had a pretty banner year in grade 12, because it's an amazing thing about alcoholics. We worked nine times harder than everybody else, drunk, just to stay even. If you could ever get the liquor out of us, we're incredible. And so I really had a good year in grade 12, and these teachers thought, hey, you know, this kid would be so good to help others. And of course, uh, the inevitable happened once I started to get the credit and the praise and everything. I started to drink, and it all started to repeat itself. I went to university, took Alcoholism 103. I remember uh, being ejaculated out of an economics class for snoring, and uh, the, the uh, professor saying to me, you know, I, I really wish you didn't have to leave my, leave my class permanently, but I want you to leave because we can't take your behavior. And I said, what behavior? I said, I, I just sleep. And he said, no, you're drunk all the time. I've never seen anybody drunk like you are. You start hearing these voices, like if you are in this room today and you're trying to decide if you're one of us, if the people have started to talk to you, that's one of the symptoms, you know? For a while, it's just kind of like, were you ever crazy last night? And then after a while, it's sort of like you're not getting invited to things. This is another tip for you. You start looking across the table and the person you're drinking with is an animal. And they look at you and they think the person I'm drinking with is an animal. That's good tips for you. Just like, if everything I'm saying to you is, is sort of annoying you, you're probably alcoholic. <laughs> I love that line in We Agnostics where Bill says, you know, if you find you can't control the amount you drink or you find you can't stop drinking and stay stopped, you're probably alcoholic. It's sort of like, if your stomach is distended over your knees for about nine months, you're probably pregnant. <laughs> Take this to the bank. If you can't control the amount of alcohol once you start to drink, you are alcoholic. And it'll just be a moment in time before the incomprehensible demoralization starts to set in. The good news is that because of Alcoholics Anonymous and the people that have gone before us and the giants that are around you this very day, you don't have to live like that anymore. 
because you can take the pressure out of reality to a place where the pain never exceeds the comfort. And therefore, you do not have to go into that way of life. By the time I was in university, the alcoholism was rampant. Uh, I could tell you a thousand incidents, none of which matter. You already know what they are. We got through that, went into the radio television business again, and ended up in British Columbia. Two just quick stories out of there, just to let you know that I do qualify. I'm afraid of heights, and so I bet one of the other announcers that if uh, Billie Jean King beat Bobby Riggs, I'd sleep on the roof of the station. Whoever expected that? But once I was up there, uh, it wasn't so bad because the company set up a, a, a 40 ounce of whiskey, and uh, pretty soon I was walking on the ledge of the building and scaring the crowd. You know, it's. See, if, if you're a person in this room today and you find that absolutely everything you would not want to do or some of the things that you're doing, you're probably alcoholic. I think one of the things I wanted more than anything else in the whole world was just to be kind of accepted and successful in this job of work that I had. And so it was surprising to me when I went downstairs in the 11 o'clock television news with a fire extinguisher, drunk, and soaked down the 11 o'clock news announcer for one of the many public humiliations that I was going to endure. It was amazing to me, within two or three days I was hanging 40 feet in the air in a crane um, in some sort of a promotion, drunk and terrified. I would sober up and say, oh my God, where am I? I know I put the cat out, where is it? And uh, just these cold sweats of coming in and out of reality. And so that's the disease of alcoholism. That makes your life unmanageable. When you're doing what you don't want to do and you're not doing what you do want to do, you don't have to go anywhere to understand that. That's what that is. We have 13 steps if they put it in two areas. I admit I'm powerless over alcohol, and I admit that my life has become unmanageable. There have been 13 instead of 12 steps. I think that's the only reason that dash is in there. You have to admit both things. And you know, recovery for me was being taken to Alcoholics Anonymous. I would love to sit here and tell you that I walked into these rooms, and because of your superior intellect and the great, loving, God-sensed feeling I had, I recovered. That was not my experience. I was picked up by a Norwegian 250-pound gorilla phoned by my sister who uh, has an eating disorder. Everybody in my family is alcoholic except her. She, she manifests it in a different way. But it's amazing, you know, somebody with a problem sees somebody with a problem, they'll call somebody to help you. And so she called this guy and he came over to my house. I got to tell you, I had been on one of those benders that are uh, the inexplicable variety, you know, where you, where you, you go not to get drunk. Have, have you ever been on, on one of these? Like I went out to drink like other people. We can't stand normal drinkers. What the hell would we want to drink like a normal drinker for? Like that's, people have trouble with insanity. Think about that. If you can't stand people who have a drink until the ice melts, why would we ever think we're going to drink like that? We drink largely for the effect. That's what they've told us since 1939. Well, anyway, I'd, I'd been in a lot of trouble the night before. Um, I did a whole bunch of stuff that I am deeply ashamed of. I was in trouble at my work, I was in trouble with my co-workers, I was in trouble with my wife, most of all I was in trouble with myself. And the phone rang and it was her, and she wanted to know how I was. No. Why would you ask anybody that? I couldn't even describe how I was. And she said, do you think you have a drinking problem? And I, here's what went through my mind. Nobody has ever outlasted me at a table. I can drink every night of the week if I want to. 
and I can operate pretty well when I'm drunk. Now, how could that be a problem? I mean, the people that had drinking problems got drunk or two or three drinks and threw up. That's a problem. I don't have a problem. Drinking is one of the things that I do very, very well. You see, the problem is in the word problem. They wanted an Alcoholics Anonymous to describe. attitude of belligerent denial. They said for people like you it's often difficult to accept a spiritual way of life even in the face of dying alcoholically. It's because I had a problem with the word problem. I saw all that was happening to me as the only way somebody like myself could survive. In other words, this was the solution to the incredibly difficult life I was having. It was a break away from reality, if you wish, and now they're trying to take that away. This guy's name was Dwayne. He came to the house. At the time, I thought him to be between six foot five, six foot eight, 280, 290 pounds. He was Norwegian. That in itself made me not like him because I married a Norwegian and and her father was rude. <laughs> he used to swear at me in Norwegian. He'd, I'd come to pick her up and he'd go, Flee de garda hel neve de helever. And he told, me, he, he told me in the first ten minutes that he was Norwegian. And I was like, why would you tell somebody that? He had a brush cut. I had long hair at the time. I was a famous radio announcer, a legend in my own mind. And uh, he was nothing. He was an alcoholism counselor, I found out in the end. In fact, uh, one of the great disappointments I had was that he'd never booked me in for treatment. And he said, you're not sick enough for treatment. You know, you just do the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and you will recover. He was an alcoholic working in the field but certainly believed more in the process of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he took me out and we, we uh, discussed him. Isn't this baffling when you're new, right? You, you expect to, to learn something about how you can get over your problems or what sort of a grant you can get or, or how they could possibly help you. And all he talked about the whole time we were out, drinking coffee, which I had never done with a male adult before, uh, was himself and the fact he, he would get drunk and he'd put his car on the railway tracks and put it in, in, in gear and then just go down the track drinking beer until a train would come and then he'd try and get it off the track and some, some of the exciting times you know I'm thinking this guy's nuts I would never I would never do that if you have to put your train on a car on a train track to be an alcoholic then I, I'm not an alcoholic <laughs> I'm also not huge in Norwegian so that's another two reasons Later on, I found there was a Catholic priest in the group, and I thought, well, I'm not even a Catholic. There's no possible way that somebody like me could be alcoholic. And uh, he took me to, um, to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on a Sunday morning. It's called the Breakfast Group in Saskatoon. If you're ever there, you want to go there. It's an abusive group. They, uh, every once in a while, one of the old-timers used to bring a baby bottle, and if you were whining, they'd throw it at you. Dwayne, um, after he told me all of this stuff I didn't care about, offered me absolutely no solution. Although he did say something to me that night I want to share with you this very morning. I think it's important. He said, I'm not saying you're alcoholic, but
But he said, what I am saying from listening to what you've told me is, is that you seem to only get in trouble where you, when you drink. You put those two things together. If you don't drink, you don't get in trouble. So I was thinking, maybe the guy's got a point. But the interesting thing about that is, is that I couldn't stay stopped. There was always so much pressure that eventually I'd have to go back. So in, you know, at some deep level, I understood myself that that was impossible. He dropped me off of the house, said he'd pick me up in the morning at 9 o'clock to go to this meeting. And I, of course, am an alcoholic. So I said, boy, I can hardly wait to hear what you guys have to say and everything. And then I left the house at 8 o'clock so that he'd miss me, and he was outside waiting in the car. <laughs> which, I don't know whether you, you had an, uh, a sponsor that was this plugged into how you thought and how you felt. This guy seemed to know everything I was going to do before I did it. Uh, he, he crushed me one day. He told me I was so ordinary. He said, you are a garden variety alcoholic. He said, a monkey could figure out what you're going to do next. <laughs> he told me one time if I ever drank that I should call him and he'd like to bring me my first drink because he said, uh, then I'm going to bust every bone in your body after you, after you have your beer. And I said, well, why? And he said, because I know if you drink, you're going to get hurt and I don't want you hurt by strangers. So I'm going <laughs> to do it myself. That's love. That's Alcoholic Anonymous love. We went to this meeting. I like to describe this meeting because for new people who think you're so absolutely different and above all of us, I went into that room at 23 years old. Everybody there was 50 plus. I expected some of them were probably well into their 90s, maybe 100. I didn't know. They were. Some of them looked like they'd been sent out to be wrinkled. They were old. <laughs> Clancy told me last night he's getting so old that when he sets something down, he says goodbye to it. You know, <laughs> I've, got, I've got an old, an older friend who says that when he golfs now, he settles up after every hole because there's. Well, anyway, these guys were old and boring. They were boring. They were drinking. I had never seen anybody drink coffee like these people drink coffee. It was like nonstop. And I'm, I thought maybe they had colostomy bags or something because they just, and it didn't seem to have any effect and nobody ever peed. That was the shocker. They were focused on 12, I couldn't figure out whether they were saying steps or stairs, but a bunch of them had been up these stairs and some of them weren't. And there was one of them who was stuck on the fifth stair, which I guess was serious as hell. They had a part in a book they read, if you were stuck on the fifth stair, that said that if you, if you don't do the fifth stair, you're going to get drunk. Well, I don't want to be at the meeting. So I'm thinking, where's the fifth stair? <laughs> it was incredible. They were talking at different things all at the same time, unrelated subjects, laughing in all the wrong places. <laughs> Do you know, here's what I've understood about that over the years of being sober. Stuff is only funny if you've stopped doing it. <laughs> you know, don't talk to me about pant wetting until I'm finished with it. You know what I'm saying? Well, anyway, the thing finally ends. I'm at this meeting and I'm thinking, God, this has got to end. Everything ends. It was just brutal. And the uh, really old one, the wizened one at the front who was running the meeting, 
looks at us dead serious and says, if you want what we have, you must be willing to go to any length to get it. So I look around. You got to understand, I'm 23 years old. I'm, I'm in pretty good shape. I got hair, teeth, got a job. Look around at these guys some more. They got no hair. <laughs> Wrinkled up. Can't drink for the rest of their lives. Jeez. So then he said, there's some alternatives. If you don't want what we have, you can die. Or you can go to the insane asylum. Well, I thought, die. I'll go, I'll take door number two. Um, I could not visualize myself in a, in a place. And you see, that's where it really all starts to take place. And if I had any success here this morning, it's this. If what I believed that morning, sitting at that meeting, if, if I was operating my life today based on those beliefs, I would still be drunk. It doesn't matter how many times you refer to a map of Los Angeles. If you're driving in Las Vegas... No matter how carefully you follow that map, all you're going to get is lost. And so when I looked at my life and the things in which I believed and what I thought to be true, which was not true, what they told me would seem not to work. And so I didn't want what they had. But I was a steely-eyed newcomer, you know, confident. <laughs> you know. Out in the parking lot, Dwayne says, what did you think of the meeting? I said, I absolutely loved that meeting. You guys have really got something going there, I'm telling you. Is there anything I can do for you, give you any free radio time, maybe donations? I mean, it's incredible. I hope you guys have great luck carrying that message to suffering alcoholics. I, I even told him I almost wished I was alcoholic so I could keep hanging around with you guys, you know? <laughs> he said, oh, don't worry, you'll be hanging around with us guys. That night he picked me up for another meeting. I was surprised as hell. Knock on the door and there's this zombie standing there with a coffee cup that was, in his mind, bottomless at my place. He never went home. I was telling uh, somebody last night, I, uh, a number of months ago, I had the opportunity to speak in front of a group and he was in the audience. And when it was over, uh, he came up and he hugged me and he had tears in his great big eyes. And, and I said, you know, Duane, I have never, ever been able to uh, find the right words to thank you for taking that year off your life and uh, taking care of me. And he said, what? I said, you know, I mean, you're just relentless. I mean, you were just always at my place and always helping me. And I just, I can't imagine that kind of dedication. It's just incredible. You saved my life. He said, I was fighting my, with my wife. I didn't give a damn about you. I just didn't, I didn't want to go home. Spiritual, very spiritual. That night he picked me up for a meeting. He took me to another meeting. It was at a place called the Mustard Seeds in Saskatoon. There was two women at the meeting, hookers, I imagine, because uh, no nice girl in my mind would be at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. So when they asked that newcomer, would you like to say anything, I said, yeah, I'd like to ask a question. As the little bugger rose up inside of me, and I said, uh, are you two hookers? And... Uh, with not missing a beat, Ruth, who became a very dear friend, looked at me and she said, no, I was never a hooker, but every once in a while 
I'd get really drunk and I'd pick up an anemic little turd like you. And, uh... <laughs> Dr. Silkworth talked about deflation at great depth. Sometimes it comes to you from places that are so abstract and weird. But you see, I believed, at one hand, that I was the best person in the world, and the other hand, I believed I was scum of the earth. When I first came around you, I thought I would never be that bad. Within nine months of being here, I was afraid to tell you who I was for fear you wouldn't let me stay with you. This is the, this is the, the, the madness and the blackness of the obsessive nature of our disorder. This inability to bring into our mind with sufficient force suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month before. That's why we're without defense against the first drink. And all of these crushing realities that I was to have. I got out in the car with Dwayne. He was in high stirrups. He said, oh, man, did she deck you. Oh, that was so funny. <laughs> and he wanted to relive it over and over. And every time we'd go for coffee, you should have seen what happened to him in the mud. Shut up! You hooker, shut up! I wanted to drink, but then we had that offer on the beating, so I, I was afraid to drink. Don't tell me that people cannot come here against their own will. Don't talk to me about people that don't want it right now. I would be dead, I'm telling you. Dead if I had, had to have wanted it when I got here. I'm so terrified sometimes when I look at, and those are the other dead people in the room applauding. Um, <laughs> Yes, some of us come in a state, beaten into a state of reasonableness, but not all of us. Some of us just come in here kicking and screaming, and it takes somebody with a really strong hand to reach across the table and say, Listen, you little son of a bitch. Like the time I went on, got really, after I got into the second step, I got so religious. I could have, I could have healed the hole in a religious record just pecking it up. I'm, I mean, I went from a drunk to a monk. I didn't want to go to Alcoholics Anonymous anymore because they swore and smoked and I was just so spiritual. Dwayne used to pick me up in the car and he'd tell me filthy jokes all the time. And I'd say, Dwayne, I really don't want to hear this. And he'd say, who cares? I think it's funny. So anyway, there's these two. <laughs> and I'd pray for him the whole time he's talking. <laughs> One day I pushed it too far and he broke and he just... We were on our way to a meeting, and he slammed the car into the curb, and he reached across, and he opened my door, and he said, Get out. Get out! He said, I'm sick of you and your religious crap. He said, You know, I have more spirituality in my ass than you have got in your whole body. Oh. Oh. Getting tough to forgive this guy. Okay. I said, how would you know that, Dwayne? He said, because all you ever do is try to get people to believe what you think is right. He said, you don't have any peace, you don't have any serenity, and you don't have anything I want. Get the hell out of the car and walk home. So I closed the door. I don't know if you've ever been kicked out of Alcoholics Anonymous. But it's a long walk home. And, and it was a terrible place to be and I went to my church for some solace and it was an amazing thing I don't know if there's a God I can't sit here and tell you anything about anything I really I don't know 
Evidence would seem to indicate that there is a higher power, a creative intelligence, a, a central wisdom inside of everything that makes everything move. But I can't stand here and tell you, and I am simply a human being. I have no insight. I've never been knocked off my jackass on the road to Damascus. I haven't had any of these experiences. I'm having what Bill described as the educational variety of a spiritual experience. Wilson once said that if you had had that experience he had in the hospital room that night where everything you had ever had happen spiritually was compressed into 30 seconds, you would feel like you were on the top of a mountain with the wind blowing through you. But it's, it's an extracted period of time. I'm slow to learn, and so my spiritual experience has been much the same. But I went to the church that day, and this is what makes you suspicious. And I'm standing outside the vestibule, trying to look good, thinking I'll probably be a preacher, or an alcoholism counselor, or a pilot. I don't know which. <laughs> and the, the pastor walked up to me and asked me a question. He said, when you're inside the church there, who's the audience? If I'm preaching, who's the audience? And I said, well, the congregation's the audience. And he said, no, you see, that's the problem you're having. He said, actually, God is the audience. We're all in here worshiping him. I'm just like a cheerleader for the group, that's all. It just, it's all going to him. And I had a major aha. And he said something to me that crushed me, but I knew it was true. He said, I think somebody like you should go back to your people. He said, we got lots of bench warmers in the church. We need people working in the street with the drunks. Go home. <laughs> kicked out of Alcoholics Anonymous, kicked out of the church. I would have drank, but I wouldn't give the bastards that much satisfaction. <laughs> so I said, thank you, and went back to AA. I walked past one of the old-timers, Jeff Charlebois, 31 years sober at this time, obviously gone now, but I walked past Jeff and he said, there but for the grace of God goes God. Everything that's wrong with me and everything that I see wrong with those around me centers in the fact that we are anchoring our souls into some things that are not true. We are basing our actions on bad beliefs. And so that second step where it says that I must come to believe that there's a power outside of myself is necessary because within myself I keep referring back to the bad information. I keep figuring out things according to a chart that doesn't work, running to a map that doesn't exist for the right city. I am a person who is absolutely terrorized by my own willpower to do something according to my wrong belief. This is the mystery of Alcoholics Anonymous. You see people incapable of life altogether suddenly get this new set of beliefs and they take that same alcoholic willpower and don't talk to me about being a weak alcoholic. B.S. Anybody that could puke the way we do, do the things we do, and continue to drink the next day, you have got willpower. Right? And so you take that same will to do these new things that you learn from a group of people who have seemingly found an answer to a hopeless state of mind and body, and you start to apply that willpower to doing those things. The proper use of the will, Bill says, is to apply God's will to your life. And you see these incredible human, Bill described them, colossal human failures through the alchemy of Alcoholics Anonymous, and God turned into these wonderful structures. It's wonderful moving around human beings that people tend to want to criticize. Every time I've ever seen a good idea in my life, it always starts out like this. First I ridicule it, then I get mad at it, then I accept it, 
And then I start saying, well, everybody knew that. So I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in my first or second year, willing to learn, willing to learn some new beliefs, willing to let go of some old ideas. You know, old ideas like nothing ever works for me. Old ideas like there is no fun on earth unless I'm drinking. Old ideas like, uh, you know, eventually this is going to blow up. If you're new in the room, I want to share something that kept me sober for the first 10 years anyway, and that's this that every single day I was sober, I knew they couldn't take it back. I couldn't guarantee I'd be sober in 20 years, but I knew every day I had, they could not get back from me. And there was some great intrinsic value inside of that. Because I always wanted the deal, you know, like, settle the deal. Tell me where it ends up. Am I going to be rich? Will I be pretty? And they say, well, here's the promise for you. You don't drink today, we won't kill you. That's all we're giving you. I'm a guy that came to Alcoholics Anonymous with two pockets full of Valium. Not because I took it, but because I was so afraid of going insane every minute. But I just wanted it there for safety. I remember Dwayne saying to me one night, Why are you carrying all that crap in your pockets all the time? I had two little bags of it. And I said, because I'm afraid of going nuts. He said, do you think you'll be going nuts in the next hour? I said, I don't know. Well, he said, what about the next three hours? Think you'll be nuts by three hours? He said, Dwayne, I don't know when I'm going to go nuts. He said, well, do you think you'll be nuts by midnight tonight? I said, I don't know. He said, then why worry about it? As long as you're not nuts before midnight tonight, you don't have to worry about it. Now, that might not make any sense to you, but it made sense to me. I threw the volume away. I've never had any sense. I'm not taking any Mary Wonderful. I don't have any, any sort of mind-altering chemical necessary to get me through a day. The pressure has been horrendous. You know why? I've succeeded. You know, I was a guy that got into business, and I had a whole bunch of business success, and I'll tell you, that's when the nuts in your head rattle. You get an alcoholic in a crisis, they can function beautifully. Give us success and watch the wheels fall off. Oh, yeah, we start to get smart, you know, unteachable. We start to anchor onto a new set of beliefs that are away from over here. And I watch guys and gals in the belly of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they function within the belly of Alcoholics Anonymous, and through good and through bad, they never deter, because they're anchored in things that are true. And as long as you're exerting your alcoholic will to use things that are true, you will be fine. So my plea to you today as a fellow alcoholic, a sufferer, a person who came in here kicking and dragging, is that this day you'd make a decision. And the decision is simply to do things that they tell you to do because, frankly, they're doing not bad. Maybe if you got a new set of beliefs and you started to exert what you know how to do with those new set of beliefs, things would happen for you. You'd be disgustingly happy. And I know in your mind right now, if you're an alcoholic like I was, I would say immediately, I don't want to be disgustingly happy. I don't want to be anything like you. In fact, when they said, do you want what we have, I could clearly say, I never want what you have. Today I do. Today I admire the right things and the right people. And, and I look for that kind of stuff, and it's magic to watch somebody having a happy life. And it seems so simple to do. Clancy said it last night beautifully. Just do the simple actions. Starts with the decision. I'll close with this. This is from W. Murray, a guy that claimed, climbed the Himalayan mountains. The reason that I use this is because I can't say it this well. He said, until there is commitment, there is 
indecision and always ineffectiveness. In all acts of creation and intention, there is a fundamental truth, the ignorance of which has killed countless splendid ideas and plans. And that truth is this, that the moment one commits, then providence moves. And when providence moves, it brings with it a virtual stream of people and circumstances and meetings of which you would have never dreamed. Therefore, whatever you dream you can do or whatever you do, begin it. Because boldness has power and magic and genius in it. Our people die from lack of decision. And they can't decide because they aren't around us long enough to see that they're hanging on to an old idea that won't work. And so uh, my pledge again to you today is like I've been pledging for a long, long time for those people that are around me, is to hang in through their resistance and their pushback and all of the things that they say and do to me and above me and behind my back, and I'm just going to get above all of that and I'm going to be a Dwayne. Just going to hang around with them because I'm fighting with my wife. No, I'm... I'm going to caring what they're saying and start caring about them living. And then Alcoholics Anonymous will be safe forever, no matter what forces come against us. God bless you. Thank you for having me here.